Protect Minnesota, the podcast where we explore 52 reasons why gun violence is an issue in our state. We're bringing you a variety of perspectives and voices from across the state of Minnesota, all advocating for gun violence prevention. This podcast is a tool to help decision makers and stakeholders throughout our communities make informed decisions that will mitigate this public health issue. This is also for the supporters, the volunteers, and the frontline workers who give selflessly and tirelessly to the movement. Thank you for tuning in and showing your support for gun violence prevention efforts across the state of Minnesota. I am your host, Ayolanda. In this episode, Jared discusses systemic racism and root causes of gun violence with Mary Moriarty former Chief Public Defender of Hennepin County and current candidate for Hennepin County Attorney. Welcome to another episode of 52 Reasons Why, a Protect Minnesota podcast. This is Jared Muscovitz once again, Director of Outreach and Organizing with Protect Minnesota. And I am so uh, thrilled to be joined today by Mary Moriarty. Many of you probably know that, that, that she is running for uh, Hennepin County Attorney, but she has um, uh, an incredible background in, uh, in this work. And uh, we're so thrilled to have her today uh, joining us to talk about a variety of issues, but, but things that, you know, to give her expertise and her, uh, you know, her experience on what's been going on in the legal system, the, these issues that we're dealing with when it comes to root causes of gun violence. And so uh, just so fortunate to have you on today. Uh, Mary Moriarty, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I'm a big fan of your work and I'm excited to to be on here to talk with you. So thank you. Of course. I think it'd be great just to start off by just letting our listeners know who you are and giving them some information on the work that you have done. Obviously it's available to look up, but who better to tell them than you? Thank you. Um, Excuse me. I actually grew up in New Ulm, Minnesota, which is in southern Minnesota, a smaller community, Uh, went to McAllister and then the University of Minnesota Law School. And then I went pretty much right into the Hennepin County Public Defender's Office. At that time, everybody in the office did everything. So I did juvenile court. I it would be at the time it was called juvenile delinquency um, child protection cases. So I represented kids and parents who were in child protection, misdemeanor cases and felonies. Um, and that continued um, until I applied to be PD and I was at chief PD and I was advocating that we needed to specialize in areas so that we could provide better representation. Um, In my 20 or so years as a trial lawyer, I tried every kind of case there is, probably tried about 13 murder cases, so um, I can talk about the clients that I had and and their backgrounds and that kind of thing. But when I was head of the adult division in the public defender's office, I was on all the steering committees for the problem-solving courts in uh, Hennepin County. I was there when the Veterans Court was created, so I'm very familiar with all the problem-solving courts. And I, when I was chief public defender, which I was for six years, uh, I was chair of the behavioral health committee uh, in Hennepin County, which meant that I worked with uh, social workers and police, suburban police, MPD, sheriff, about options for people who were struggling with mental health conditions and substance abuse disorder. 
I am particularly interested in those issues because my stepsister died of an accidental overdose 30 years ago when she struggled with some mental health issues and was on some medication and, and uh, drank and accidentally died. Um, so that's a bit of my background. I'm really, uh, really invested in racial equity um, and bringing reform to the system, which I also know will make us safer. And I know we can talk about that as why I think that that's the case. I mean, yeah, I think that's a great way to kind of dive into it. And, and thanks for sharing, you know, your background on this. It's, you know, you've been able to you kind of have your like hands in different cookie jars about this whole time, like different facets and aspects of what makes up this the, our justice system, the legal system, and to be able to kind of have experiences in all of these different areas. Um, I would, my assumption would be that most people um, who are coming into your work now would not, would likely not be able to, to kind of do that. I, I would assume they'd be more specialized earlier on, do you think, or do you think that, or, or maybe are, am, I, am I wrong in assuming that people are, who are coming into this work now are still maybe able to kind of sample everything and get a sense of where they would best fit in? It's actually both. Um, the, the goal in going into divisions, for instance, we had people who specialized in property drug cases. And the idea there was to give them an opportunity to become really familiar with the law on the constitutional law and stops and search, searches and seizures, but also to become familiar with clients um, struggling with addiction. And what were the solutions to that? But we also understood, and we asked for a two-year commitment in each division, but we understood that people needed to move around and they would want to go from there to our serious felony division or our juvenile division or do misdemeanors for a while. And so right now uh, you have the opportunity in, in that office to do uh, everything, but you're gonna do it um, two years at a time at least. That's very interesting. I, that's something that's very interesting to me just personally, like understanding how that works and trying to think about, you know, just how people progress through the line of work and, and where they end up is, is always interesting. Um, you know, thinking about the work that you've done, like I said, you and like, as you've mentioned, you've been able to experience a wide variety of uh, different specializations or um, parts of, of, of the justice system. Um, you know, at Protect, you know, obviously we focus on gun violence prevention. But we know that it's not as simple as just focusing on the gun itself. It's a big part of what we do. Um, and that's will be featured in many other episodes of this podcast. But as we look at this problem from an all angles perspective and we look at ways to prevent gun violence before they happen, this is what we talk about when we talk about identifying and working on root causes. So from your perspective and based on the work that you've done, what would you say are the issues that uh, align themselves most with being root causes that lead people down the path to gun violence? And, you know, what kind of things, what kind of solutions do you see uh, as being particularly effective in addressing them? So one of the things that I did as a public defender, we, we had social workers who worked in our office and we tried to approach clients from a more holistic perspective not just what, is, what are you charged with, but who are you? Um, and, and one thing we would do would be social histories on clients. And so frequently uh, when I talked to my clients about their histories, they had been victimized so many times and experienced trauma. And I often thought, you know, if we had intervened back here, 
um, if this client had gotten uh, some kind of treatment therapy, trauma-based approach back here, even as a child, um, so many of the clients start out in the child protection system or foster care system. And if we had intervened in an effective way back then, this person would not have been here. As you, you've heard the, the phrase, hurt people hurt people. And one of the things I think I bring it as a public defender is that I don't, so many people see there's a perpetrator, somebody called a perpetrator, and then there's a victim and there's no crossover there. And what we see in the system is that today's person who is a victim who is harmed may very well be tomorrow's person who harms somebody else. So I could see trauma, which the courts do not address well at all. They don't recognize it well. And when I saw, I mentioned I tried many murder cases and, when, and unfortunately they were often young black men. And when I would get to know them, I would see despair lack of hope, um, and really not thinking that they would live beyond the next birthday, which is incredibly tragic and sad when you're talking to somebody who's like a kid who's 19, 20 years old, um, who's just kind of out there doing their thing because they really have no hope of a future. Um, and so I saw that a lot and I recognized that we need to do a much better job addressing uh, education and jobs for youth and training. Um, and those, those are some of the root causes. And I also know I've, I've done a lot of research and study and I love reading books. Um, I've, you know, certainly we are one of the states with some of the highest disparities in the country on every metric, mm -hmm. home ownership, um, uh, income, health disparities, and certainly in the, the criminal legal system. And that has a cost. Um, systemic racism has a cost and does mean that we are seeing the results of poverty and despair in the system. Uh, there's also plenty of settled research about youth and adolescent brain development. And when you are a youth, your brain isn't fully developed until 25 or later, and you are very susceptible to impulsive decision-making where you're really not thinking about, hey, if I fire this gun, this might happen. Um, and so we really haven't addressed uh, much of any of that. And I think that's a key component uh, to, to um, working on our gun violence. And, and actually, I mean, obviously everybody deserves to be safe. Um, and one of the things I've talked about a lot because of my work is I do understand that there are carjackings that have happened in neighborhoods that people thought were safe, but, and, and I understand that people deserve to be safe. I don't want us to lose focus on the fact that there's been gun violence in some of our communities for decades, and we have not had an effective uh, reaction to that. Um, and we know some of the things we should be doing and we just haven't done them. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, it's, it's an important point I think you bring up with uh, brain development and with, uh, you know, I mean, I can't, I cannot fathom that perspective of, of, of not, of mentally just living in that life that I'm living like I'm out of time. My time is running out. I don't know if my time's coming up. I don't know if I'll make it to my next birthday. It's such a foreign, I feel lucky to say that it's a foreign concept to me, but you know, I, I can assume and imagine that living with that mindset will lead you down some really, really horrible paths. And the numbers bear it out too. We know in 2020, 
of the 500 gun deaths in Minnesota, 22% of them were Minnesotans ages 20 to 29, and that was the largest bracket of, a, of an age range for for a decade. Uh, you know, 108 of the of the 500 um, were. Uh, we're in that age range and we even had, you know, if you add in ages 10 to 19, you're at nearing 150 of the 500, um, regardless of how the, they died. Um, you know, that is a death by a gun. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's really important to, you know, when I hear, you know, this idea that we need to be looking at these at, at, at people as people, it sounds like a basic concept, but I think it's important for people to remember that when we talk about people and we label them as a criminal or as an addict, we really are doing damage to people and their psyche and their ability to see themselves as something more than that when they are simply labeled that way, whether that's through the court or through the court of public opinion, which a lot of these labels tend to come from. Um, and to look at someone holistically as a person and to, to see the good in them. I mean, to hear that that's you know something that you've continued to kind of keep in mind and keeping your forefront is super important. Um, Can would I just- you, yeah. Can oh, I yeah. say a little bit more on that? Of course, I think yeah. That is 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 critically important right now. Um, <clears throat> we know um, if you look at history, not to or actually pretty recent history, there was this term that actually came up in the Clinton years, uh, named called super predator, mm-hmm. and that was focused at young black youth. Yeah. Um, and you know you can look at the Central Park Five. Um, young black youth who were convicted of the rape of the Central Park jogger who were actually innocent. Um, But what I fear right now and and what I would hope to remind people in this campaign as well is we can't go back to that because now I am hearing things that sound pretty close to super predator to me. And it's, it's language that's really referring to young black youth. And it makes it, you know, in the war on drugs, all of that, I think that using that kind of language that otherizes people makes it a lot easier for people to think about and, and think the appropriate approach is just punishment for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. If we think of youth as our youth, um, our brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, um, and their lives are just as important as everyone's lives, and they matter. They matter to our community, which I think is not being communicated effectively to youth in the community. And I think that that leads to something. So we have to remind ourselves, find our compassion and humanity and resist this call um, to think of uh, somebody that commits a crime, even a, a violent crime as somebody who uh, cannot be rehabilitated and deserves to go to prison for a long period of time, um, and that we otherize them, and we're not really thinking, what would we want to see happen if this was our child or our neighbor's child? And I think that's really important. I think it is too. That's so well said. And you know, we think about, I mean, the, the Central Park Five, I'm sure most of our listeners are at least familiar with that case, but we're talking about five teenagers. And when we talk about brain development, um, and obviously all five of them were exonerated. It doesn't change the fact that the, the damage was done, of course. And, you know, so that's an, obviously a, a huge national story, but that the, the lessons that we've learned from that, we need to continually apply those <laughs> to everything we're doing going forward. And it does, you make a great point because it seems like we are starting to maybe slide back and that backslide is really, really dangerous. That backslide will get 
young black men killed um, by a, in, through a variety of means, and that is just something we we need to try to do better on. That's really well, a really good point. Um, based on your experience, you know, it's obviously multifaceted, and there's there's no one right solution. But when we talk about violence prevention and ending gun violence or preventing more of it, you know, obviously, I don't think it's you know, we'll ever get rid of all violence, all gun violence. That's you know, that's obviously incredibly you know, aim for the stars kind of perspective, but that doesn't mean we can't, we can't try to aspire to that. Right. And we should try to aspire to that. So what are your, you know, based on your experience and, and the work that you've done, what are some, some solutions that you think would be effective, whether it's to end gun violence or simply violence as a whole, you know, mm-hmm. um, just because we need, I think people on our podcast, when you talk about people need hope right now, um, people want to know like what, could I be fighting for? And what are things that maybe they haven't thought of outside of the, um, you know, we know about legislation that's already been passed or proposed, but people are seeing that stall out and, and not be passed fully into law. So they're looking for what else can we be working on or fighting for? Yeah. And, and thank you for asking that because it's, it's such a great question. And I know people, uh, as I've talked to them, they know we need to change but they don't know what that looks like and they want tangible things to do or advocate for. And the other thing I would say is I'm actually pretty hopeful because there are many things we haven't done. We've fallen back on the same responses which have led to more violence and uh, we have not been safer because of those. And so one thing I think people really need to keep in mind is trauma. The court system, and I'm talking about the court system, I mean, there's certainly lots of people with trauma. Imagine living in a community where uh, you have to get into your bathtub because people are firing random shots into your house. I can't imagine that. I do live in Minneapolis, but I don't live in a neighborhood where I have to worry about that. I don't have to live in it, or I'm not living in a neighborhood where I have to worry about whether my child can go outside and, you know, will get shot. Um, And so there's trauma just living with violence. Um, And so we have to recognize that. And the court system is really terrible at dealing with violence. And so one of the things I think we can do is really implement trauma-based approaches with youth um, in particular, when they come into the system uh, to try to address what's happened to them. I also think when you're talking about in the community, and this is hopefully before youth ever get in the community, is conflict resolution skills. You know, and it kind of goes along with adolescent brain development. You know, it's, it's in, in the proliferation of guns, frankly, in our community. We have way too many guns in the community. We need gun control desperately. But I also recognize that's caught up in politics and we may not get that. So I think what we need to do is actually invest in um, programs which teach our kids, um, and that can be in schools too. When you're upset, what do you do? You know, when somebody, you know, dismisses you or says something that you don't like or bumps into you, you know, unfortunately we're seeing these reactions where you've got kids with guns and I, I know of one case where a kid had a gun, saw somebody sitting in a car that he didn't like, and just walked up and shot it. Okay. That, you know, if we could teach that kid, hey, you know, and get them to think about, you know, what is the rest of your life going to look like? 
when you get caught on that, which he did. And what is that young person's life that you just ended? And when you're angry or mad about something, what are the other responses? And so, you know, some of the work that the uh, Office of Violence and Prevention in Minneapolis is doing is really good. It's trying to train trusted messengers in the community that can see and hear when things are happening and work with youth about, hey, let's talk about what the responses might be. The Office for Violence Prevention, which isn't funded as well as it should be, in my opinion, is doing some research-based uh, uh, programs such as there's one, it's called Cure Violence, and it was created by a doctor who said that we should treat violence like a disease, it's contagious. And we know that there's a fairly small group of people, kids, youth in the community that are likely to be the next victims of crimes or the people who victimize somebody of crimes. And the idea is to, if somebody is shot, a team descends upon the hospital, um, talks to the friends, the acquaintances, people who are upset, and tries to talk them through what appropriate responses might be other than retaliation. Um, and that's had some success. So the good news is that there are lots of programs there um, which, which we could invest in. Another one is, and this I was aware of when I was still chief public defender. So people probably don't know this, but if you have a gun out in public and you don't have a permit, you could be charged with a gross misdemeanor. But if you have a gun and you're out in public and you have what's called a violent prior offense, and by violent prior offense, the law, it's not what the public generally thinks it is. When I ask people, what do you think is a violent offense? They'll say robbery, rape, murder. They don't think of drug crimes. Mm. Um, and, and so there are people out there, <clears throat> excuse me, that are ineligible to be in possession of a gun. It can't be in their glove compartment by their nightstand, even if they're afraid. So, um, the city attorney's office did a study of the people who were coming in on gross misdemeanor offenses, because generally they were getting probation and, and not really anything else. And almost all of them uh, were coming back and committing more serious offenses. And so to the credit of the city attorney's office, they looked at, uh, hey, what can we do better? Because we're clearly not making a difference um, in these mostly young men's lives. And so they created, and I think out of their budget, partnered with a program to do trauma-based programming. And I think the program was about eight months long. And I went to the first graduation for the people who attended that, and they followed it with data. And most of those people did not come back on a more serious offense. If they did come back, it was something on a driver's license, something like that. Mm -hmm. That tells me that worked um, and it was uh, addressing the trauma and the needs that those people had. So what we don't have right now is a trauma-based program for those people who are prohibited from carrying a gun because of some or some what the law claims is a, a violent conviction. And you know what? The mandatory minimum on those cases is five years in prison. Wow. And, and remember, these people aren't doing anything with their guns. If they were shooting at somebody or aiming at somebody, they would be charged with a different crime. So they are simply, it, it's in their glove compartment or something like that. And it's essentially the same group of mostly young men, um, unfortunately, mostly black young men, 
And we have an opportunity here. And when I was still chief public defender, I was trying to encourage probation to design a program that addressed the trauma there. Um, and judges were wanting uh, to send people to programs because they could if there was a program available. And that just didn't happen. And so here's another opportunity for us. Do we want to send this person to prison for five years, a young person who will get out of prison um, and where will they be then? In what condition will they be then? Or do we want to send them, put them on probation and send them to a program that actually addresses the, the trauma and the other issues that they have going on, helps them get a job, you know, works on, on that kind of thing. So we don't have that, we should have that. So that's, I can think of a, a many programs, many ways that we can help um, reduce violence in the community, reduce recidivism, or in other words, people coming back into the system that we just aren't doing right now. That's so well said. And I think it's interesting because, and you brought it up too um, in the in, earlier, but what jumps out at me, and, and, and I think this is because of my personal experience working prior to this, I, I worked in the, for a company that does um, rehabilitation for people suffering from opioid use disorder. Mm. And the way that you've talked about how we need to look at, you know, these people who are in these programs, the, the, the language and the semantic choices that you're using are the same kind of choices that have been purposely made in the, into how we treat people in the addiction community, right? Mm -hmm. To again, not label people as addicts or as criminals or whatever they might be, or as, as, uh, as delinquents, as you mentioned before, the, the delinquent youth terminology, but to understand that there are people who are suffering from an issue from, from a disorder, we we term we we use the term opioid use disorder in that, rather than calling an opioid addict. And so when we talk about people who have gone through, and especially when you talk about like the secondary and the tertiary trauma of gun violence, the people who witness it, the people who it happens to their loved one, you know, this is trauma, and uh, to be able to build in programs to continually lean on this idea of treatment and rehabilitation over punishment. We know that's more successful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people uh, who are dealing with drug issues, they get sentenced in their court sentencing and they are sentenced to go to treatment. And as a condition of their, of their release or their quote unquote punishment or sentence, and that can have obviously a, a massively positive impact. If we could it seems like we don't need to reinvent the wheel, I think is what my point is. We have other industries are using concepts that we can apply to this concept, right? While that's true, um, we don't have nearly enough culturally appropriate mm -hmm. treatment options. We also don't, as a criminal system, look at recovery as recovery. Um, okay. I, I want to approach um, addiction from a public health lens mm -hmm. and harm reduction lens. And that means, um, because I've seen this happen over and over, somebody's put on probation, they test positive for some drug and they're taken into custody and maybe they're revoked and sent to jail or prison. Mm -hmm. And people who are familiar with recovery know it, it's, it's not, um, you can't use drugs and 
I mean, it's it's one step forward, two steps back. Yeah, it's not a um, zero sum thing. Yeah, right. Relapse is part of recovery often, yes. and we have to recognize that as a system. We have to recognize that there are co-occurring disorders, um, you know, mental health issues, trauma issues that aren't mm -hmm. addressed. And as I said, um, from my experience being on the steering committees of all the uh, problem-solving courts, they do not do well with people of color. Um, and I think that's in part because we don't have enough programs with people who look like those people and understand the culture that they're dealing with as well. So yes, um, we, we have gotten much better at recognizing um, that uh, these are our brothers and sisters and cousins. I think that most people have probably been impacted by the opioid crisis in mm -hmm. some way. And, and I think that that helps us recognize um, that these are our friends and family and we want to, to treat them, we, we want to help them get out of the system, uh, and, but I think we can do better. Absolutely. Um, I want to close on, on this last kind of thought. Um, and again, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a really fascinating discussion. Um, and I think has offered a lot to, for our listeners to think about. But, but I'd love to get your thoughts as we close here on on restorative justice, and in particular, you know, the the balance that we have to try to strike, or, or I mean, even if, if we even can truly strike a balance um, between immediate people who need and want and desire immediate response to crime. We obviously are dealing with issues of public safety, but. We also are working on longer term solutions to these issues. So how do we balance that? And how can we, um, in your mind or in your opinion, um, you know, kind of do both at the same time? Um, is it possible to really do both? And how can we better do that? That's a great question. And it's one I get asked a lot, um, especially right now. Uh, I will say I'm a big fan of restorative practices. Um, one of the things that isn't happening right now, especially with youth, is they are not getting into programming for many, many months. Um, and this is on car theft cases. Um, and, and there are ways that the county attorney can make it possible for them to get into programs right away. And that's that's for car theft, as I said. So part of when I think about this, I think of, okay, in on carjackings, we know that in Minneapolis, 10% of the people uh, who commit or are accused of committing carjackings are caught. And countywide, it's 24%. And so from somebody who's running to be county attorney, I think, well, when I think in terms of accountability, that's only 10% or 24% that we can actually deal with and figure out what the issues are. And so one thing I think about is, so what's what does law enforcement need on those other 90% or 75%? Because if people are out there and there's no accountability, um, there's really not a lot the prosecutor can do. And, and so I'm curious about what's happening there. And I'm also curious about, okay, that 24% or that 10%, what is happening to them in the system? Um, and we don't know that either. So I, there, there needs to, I talk about accountability versus punishment, and, and I would refer people to Danielle Sered, um, who is, she created a program called Common Justice in New York, and they work with youth ages 16 to 26 on violent offenses, excluding domestics and sexual assaults. Danielle Sered is herself a violent, or survivor of a violent crime, 
And her program is remarkable. She's written a book called Until We Reckon. And her language is different. You know, you talked about language before being important. So she talks about harmed parties and responsible parties. And she talks about the difference between meaningful accountability and punishment. We are really, really good at punishment, really good about it. And I remember, so I teach at the University of Minnesota Law School and one of my students said, well, if you're just gonna have restorative justice and somebody just has to apologize, how does that deter anyone? And I said, let me give you a really, really simple example. You steal a candy bar from a convenience store. Would you rather um, be grounded and have your electronics taken away or marched down to the store, give the candy bar back or pay for it, look in the person's eyes, apologize, listen to the impact on them and do some help around the store? which would you rather do? And then, you know, light bulbs go off because people then realize, oh, okay, you know, being grounded and have my electronics taken away is about punishment. And it focuses on me. I'm sitting in my room, I'm mad. I'm thinking, oh, they have 10,000 candy bars. My parents are so mean, what's the big deal? And I never think about the impact I had on this particular person. But if I go over there and I have to look at them and hear that, it changes you. And in fact, I've told that story when I've been out campaigning and people have said to me, oh, I did that. <laughs> My parents made me go back and I never did it again. That's, of course, a really simple uh, answer. But the concept applies on violent crime. And people, some I've heard, I've had people say to me, oh, you want to send people on violent crime to a couple of circles? And I've said, no, that's not what this is about. This, her program is over a year long. Mm -hmm. over a year long, because when you're addressing violence, you have to unpack a lot of different issues. And the person who's been harmed has to want that as an option. And so what she says is about 50% of people who are actually uh, uh, victimized by violent crime don't even report it to the system. Mm -hmm. And then when they report it, they get offered the traditional system or nothing. And they say, well, I, I guess I want the traditional system because they haven't been offered anything else. What they really want is to know that this person who hurt them will never hurt anybody again. And they want the answers to questions. Why did you do this? Did you target me? What was going through your mind? And they never get those answers, never. I've sat through how many sentencing hearings where I've listened to victim impact. And people always ask those questions and they never get the answers. And on the flip side, you can send somebody to prison. You know, as Danielle Sered said, some of the people who enter the program opt out of it because they would rather do prison time than have to own up to what they did. Mm -hmm. And her rate at which people come back is 7%. That is unheard of here. We have wow. recidivism rates of half to a third. And I wanna probably, I know we're kind of getting close to time, but I want to say that this is an option mm -hmm. for people who've been harmed. And what I have heard loud and clear from victim advocacy groups and survivors is that they want another option. So there's certainly people who don't want this option, but for the people who do, it's an incredible opportunity for healing and rehabilitation of a person who's committed a violent crime. And I'll just leave you with this. Uh, Daniel Sered told a story at a webinar a couple of months ago about a kid who was robbed on his way to work, on, on his way to the bus stop. 
And the impact on him was he could no longer walk to the bus stop. He was too afraid. He had a physical reaction. He had to buy Ubers. He didn't have enough money to do that. His family was offered restorative justice, as was the responsible party. His mother actually said, um, if I had a machete, I would chop the kid who did this into little pieces. So she wasn't doing it because she wanted to help the kid who robbed him. But she said, my son is so badly injured, you know, emotionally. The, if, if he has a chance to heal here, we've got to take this possibility. So the kid who is responsible said, you know, I know how to defend myself. What if I taught him how to defend himself? And you can imagine, I can't even imagine that happening here. Yeah. You know? And so over a period of time, they figured out and they developed an agreement where they would go to a martial arts studio with a professional there. And they taught the kid some self-defense moves. And then the kid who robbed him started holding him first really lightly and he would get away. And they progressed to the guy who robbed him, holding him really tightly, as tightly as he could. And he got away. The next day, Danielle Sered got a call on her cell phone, and all she heard on the other end was, nothing happened. And she said, what? And it was the young man who had been robbed, and he said, this was in New York, by the way, he said, I walked to the bus stop, and nothing happened. And then I took a bus to Times Square, and I'm in Times Square. I'm not afraid to be around people. I'm, I'm okay. And you know, even still, when I tell that story, I think, wow. If we could give that to somebody who was victimized and harmed, the opportunity to get on a path towards healing and to know that the person who harmed them had taken meaningful accountability and also, by the way, had worked on his own trauma over the period of this year and is so less likely to come back because he understood the impact um, of what he did on this young man. And it also really uh, worked on the issues that led him to this place. So I believe in restorative practices. Um, it's not for every case, but we have to implement it. Um, this is what people who have been harmed want. It's a way towards more safety. It's not gonna happen in every case. Um, it's not appropriate for every case. So we do have to address uh, violent crime by being better at apprehending people and then uh, figuring out what we're doing with them. As I said, there's a very low uh, rate of arrest. Um, we need to take a look at what's happening with them. Uh, are they going to prison? Are they not? And we need to use data. I'm a big data and research person. Let's look and see what's happening. And if they're all getting out and committing new crimes, then what we're doing isn't working and we need other options. Uh, well said, and I think a perfect place for us to, to, to stop. And, and yeah, and thank you for sharing that. That's incredibly powerful and incredibly important for us all to consider and, and definitely, uh, yeah, wow. So, well, thank you so much for your time. Um, uh, Mary Moriarty, former uh, Chief Public Defender in Hennepin County, currently a candidate for Hennepin County Attorney. Uh, you can find out more about her campaign at maryforhennepin.com. Uh, Mary Moriarty, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Again, I really appreciate your time and your presence and, and all the work that you've done. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been another episode of 52 Reasons Why, uh, the Protect Minnesota podcast. I'm Jared Muskovitz, and we will catch you for the next one. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Protect Minnesota, the podcast where we explore 52 reasons why gun violence is an issue in our state. 
If you want to listen to past episodes of the podcast or for more information about how you can be involved in this movement, visit protectmn.org. Until next time.